0: This is the Aftermarket Radio Network.
1: Welcome everyone to yet another episode of Diagnosing the Aftermarket A to Z. I'm Matt Fonslow and today we're welcoming back Margaret Light. She is a therapist, marriage and family therapist, and it's pretty fitting considering the last few episodes that have been coming out. To bring her back on, and I think there's a very important question to just start right out with, but before I do that, I would like to take a second here to thank our sponsor, Napa Auto Care. How does Napa support your auto care center through national marketing? Napa will build upon the already successful Know How For All campaign and promote auto care offerings and services to our Do It For Me customer with support through sales driver promotions, optimized targeted media in local markets and proven channels, Give your repair facility an online presence on the NAPA online, generating millions of views per month. If you are interested in partnering with NAPA Auto Care and capitalizing on the NAPA Know How for All all national marketing campaign, contact your servicing NAPA Auto Care Part store. All right. So welcome back, Margaret. Thank you so much for coming back on.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: I've had a few episodes uh, kind of lining up. Probably starting way back, I think it was episode 25 with Brandon Steckler, where he and I talk about our very different divorce experiences. And then I think it was episode 49, uh, you and I did the one on uh, technician suicide. And then just recently, episode 56 with Brian Pollock and Paul Danner, Brian talked about uh, a kind of a real hurdle him and his wife overcame together uh, involving forgiveness. And they all seem to kind of correlate with a, a kind of a seed that you planted in our episode concerning uh, suicide and one of the big contributors of that being a higher higher than normal divorce rate. You know, Brandon and I are talking about our uh, divorces, Brian uh, talking about what could have really ended up being a divorce and a kind of a common thread, at least between Brian and myself, and then a lot of other people I know that have been divorced and it would be super easy to sit here and just say it seems to be men. It's a male-dominated profession right now, so it is overwhelmingly men. But one of the common threads seems to be I was blindsided. I didn't see it coming. So if I go back to my situation, the day of, I, <laughs> I did not sense any issues. It may be TMI, but we were intimate. And then she just didn't come home that day. Uh, I don't know about Brian's specific, uh, like that specific, nor is it that important, but similar situation where, you know, he thinks everything's just fine and dandy, comes home one night, she breaks the news to him and really didn't see it coming. So I guess I want answers. That's why you're here. <laughs> I want answers. <laughs> right.
0: There is, I, I actually think there is some truth to that, right? So when we look at the stats around who in relationships actually initiates a divorce, there's some truth to this idea of it, it's primarily women doing that. So when we look at kind of divorce rates, everybody's sort of familiar with this idea of 50% of marriages end in divorce, but we need to break that down a little further to actually understand what that means. So specifically 41% of first marriages end in divorce. 60% of second marriages end in divorce and 73% of third
1: marriages end in divorce. So they're not learning from their mistakes. Correct. Yes, that is the theme there.
0: With that being said, up to 70% of divorces are initiated by the wife. And when in a couple, the wife is college educated, that number jumps to up to 90% of divorces are initiated by the wife. So there is something happening there right? Um, And then even when we look at who regrets a divorce after it happens, roughly the estimates are 39% of men regret a divorce compared to only 27% of women.
1: I would have thought that number would have been higher across the board. Just in general, not that I interact with so many different people, but it does, it seemed like a common thread that a lot of them in retrospect were kind of like, geez, you know, this is salvageable. This was If I would have just put in a little effort, if we would have worked together, it would have been just fine. I don't know the number. Some studies about people that did work through their differences at the end were significantly happier, not only than before, but also compared to other people that didn't. So people that ended up getting divorced after whatever this time period was, five years, 10 years, the people that stuck it out, worked together, were uh, much happier than those that Gave up.
0: Right. And so when we look at this idea of men being blindsided by a divorce, there's a lot of things that go into that. One of the big ones we look at is most couples on average. And, you know, this is an average. So this isn't true for every couple. But most couples are waiting almost too long to seek some type of help with their marriage. So the average is seven years. By the time someone ends up in my office, on average, they've been in distress for seven years, which is a long time.
1: It's a long time and it seems to be a number. You have the seven year itch, right? Which not only was a movie, but it's like a, a thing. Uh, I would say that, uh, my first wife, our first rough patch was at that seven year mark. And I think Brian, if I recall, uh, his issue arised around the seven year mark. Uh, is there a theory as to what contributes to that? Is it something where it took that long to hit that limit and just, you know, the threshold is broken and enough is enough, or is there more to it than that?
0: So when we look at sort of the life cycle, so to speak, of a relationship, the first couple of years tend to be relatively easy in that it's that kind of quote unquote honeymoon phase, right? And so a lot of our research on relationships kind of indicates that By the time that seven years of marriage or just being together hits, we've kind of moved through the honeymoon phase, right? We started having some real conflict. And this is the part where it's the first seven years where divorce is the most common. When we're looking at sort of the different things that lead into a divorce or that kind of come to that, When we're looking at relationships that are high conflict or have certain communication patterns that tend to lead to a lot of conflict, those relationships tend to end about five and a half years in. When we look at relationships where there's not as much overt conflict and there's more avoidance of conflict and maybe just lack of emotional connection, those relationships end too, but they last a lot longer. So those tend to end on average about 16 years in.
1: Wow, 16 years.
0: Right, which is a long time to just, again, be disconnected from a spouse. And yet, it tends to be easier, apparently, for people to tolerate disconnection than kind of this overt conflict thing that happens. The other piece I'm sort of thinking about with this idea of men being blindsided by divorce and sort of this question about how divorce kind of feeds into suicide When we look at divorced men, they tend to have higher rates of drug and alcohol use. They tend to engage in more risk-taking behaviors and have an increased risk of mental health concerns, right? So all of that feeds into this suicide concern. Divorced men are two and a half, roughly, times more likely than married men to commit suicide and actually eight times more likely to commit suicide than divorced women, So when we look at reasons for that, this gets into kind of couple dynamics about how does emotional support happen in a relationship? So when we're looking at when they do surveys of men and women and who would you tell if you were feeling depressed, roughly 71% of men say, well, I would tell my wife and that is the person they would tell. So then if the wife is gone, they tell no one. And when we compare it to women, Only 39% of women say, well, the person I'd go to if I was depressed is my husband. So there's a little bit of a thought of women tend to serve as the primary social support for their spouse more than the other way around, right? So when we do surveys of this, 66% of men name their wives as their primary social support. 21% name friends. And 10% say, well, I have no one at all.
1: I mean, I guess I hope these questions don't steer anything, but I'm kind of torn about the reasons for that, the why specifically why women wouldn't go to their spouse or their significant other with these feelings. And I, cause often we hear, we don't listen. We're problem solvers, especially in this profession. You come to me with a problem. I listen enough to try to figure out the solution and that may not be what they want. And so they're just kind of like, he's not going to listen to me. So why waste my time? And then how much of that is just basic social programming or, you know, as a woman, that's just not something you would do through, you know, I have a doubt about it being um, instinctual, but just over time growing up in an environment, you're kind of programmed that that is not where you go with these problems. You go to presumably friends or coworkers. I, I don't know.
0: No, I think it's a really good question because it gets into what are the reasons people give for getting a divorce, right? So if divorce is this thing that women tend to initiate, there's this question of, so what are women saying is the reason they're, they're, ha- they're requesting a divorce. So there's the sort of usual stuff that we expect, which are things like problematic alcohol or drug use, affairs, abuse, domestic violence, money issues, too much conflict, right? There's that stuff. But then there's the more kind of specific stuff that's also a little harder to nail down, which is this idea of my emotional needs aren't being met. And that means a lot of things. So in surveys of women who have initiated a divorce, they talk about things of, well, my spouse is indifferent to my feelings or kind of cluelessness about how I feel. There's a lack of maybe reassurances or small gestures to say that I matter. There's a lack of affection, a lack of romance, a lack of appreciation or closeness. And those are kind of hard to conceptualize sometimes for folks of like, what does that mean?
1: I bought you flowers two years ago for Valentine's Day. I mean, come on. (laughs)
0: Right. (laughs) So John Gottman is a big relationship researcher. And essentially what he did was study couples who are happy and who do well in relationships and study couples who are unhappy or who relationships end. And then he essentially found a way to classify what do happy marriages include?
1: Was he the one that did a study with couples that he'd observed them In a discussion with like a counselor or a therapist and he count the number of eye rolls. Uh, Yes. Predict within, I mean, it was within an absurd.
0: 91% accuracy.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. If the relationship was going to last based on the number of eye rolls.
0: That's real. And eye rolls are a symptom of contempt. You know, shocker, if you have contempt for your spouse, you're probably not creating an environment where anything good is happening.
1: There's a lot of people listening to that right now going, Matt has a lot of contempt for everybody.
0: I guess that's a thing you get to figure out. (laughs) So Gottman, right, did this research, figured out what are happy couples doing. And he has really, he really found this way to, to really teach people what emotional skills do you need in a marriage? A good enough marriage that someone wants to stay in it and is generally happy, right? We're not creating perfect marriages here but there is this idea of what's good enough. And so he identified these four communication patterns that tend to lead to divorce. And it's this 91% accuracy, right? And he's also the one who kind of gave this number of the first three minutes of a conversation dictates the rest of the conversation, how well or how poorly that goes. So it actually matters a lot how you talk to each other. And everybody and their brother is convinced that they are the one doing excellent communicating and their spouse just sucks at it. And everybody and their brother is wrong.
1: That is how people are. It's kind of the almost a perfect example of Dunning-Kruger in a relationship where I'm the one doing all the work here. I'm the one who's in the right. I can't believe you're not listening to me. I can't believe you're not acknowledging all the effort and stuff I do.
0: Yes. And that's contempt 101, right? Contempt is sarcasm. It's cynicism, name calling, eye rolling. You're such an idiot. I can't believe you would think that. What's wrong with you?
1: See, I don't say that specifically. I imply it.
0: That's not any better.
1: I really only speak in sarcasm, so what you're saying here is there's like a 100% chance I'm going to be in that 60% range.
0: Well, that's unfortunate for you. And the way you counter contempt is by figuring out how to show your spouse appreciation.
1: Bought her flowers a couple years ago for Valentine's Day.
0: That is not sufficient. Sorry.
1: I think I told her she looked nice probably a few months ago. <laughs>
0: Right. Yeah. Uh So here's another number for you because Gottman likes numbers. When we look at how happy couples interact, he was able to figure out a ratio 20 to one in non-conflict scenarios. So it's positive interactions to negative 20 positive one negative when you're not in active conflict. And when you're in active conflict, the ratio is still five to one, five positive one negative. How many couples in the world when they're in active conflict? can find five positives.
1: <laughs> 9%? Right,
0: it's very little. Yes, exactly. None of us have these skills, or at least most of us don't. And yet we're so convinced that we do and our spouse is the one who doesn't that we never evaluate ourselves and really pay attention to, yeah, what's my side of the line here and how do I clean that up and do better?
1: Pointing that microscope at yourself sucks. Who, who wants to do that?
0: It, it, it's really hard.
1: Aiming at somebody else.
0: Well, that's true. And that's what couples in unhappy relationships do is they spend all their time looking at the other person and not enough time looking at themselves, right? So contempt is one of these communication patterns that's a problem. The other ones are criticism, which are these really global attacks, right? It's not you left the dishes in the sink this morning. It's you are disrespectful as a person because you always do this. Uh-huh.
1: Always leave dirty dishes in the sink.
0: Right. And criticism's a problem because how is anyone supposed to respond to that outside of saying, no, I don't, which doesn't actually get anybody anywhere. So, contempt, criticism, defensiveness, which is this, I only do X because you do Y. So, therefore, it is still your fault.
1: Yep. Cause and effect.
0: Right. And if you would just change now, I would do better. That doesn't actually lead to anything either. And then there's this concept of stonewalling, which is really important when we talk about men in relationships. So stonewalling is tuning out, not listening, ignoring, preoccupying yourself with something else, turning away physically. And then it's some type of hopelessness response. It doesn't matter what I think. You just do whatever you want to do. I don't even know why you're asking me. And the emotions that underlie that are usually some version of fear, anger, loneliness, feeling attacked, some version of that. But what it really does is say to our spouses, I don't hear you. I don't value you. I'm not listening. Good luck getting what you want here.
1: Sometimes I get accused of stonewalling and I'm really not. Like I, I focus on something and you cease to exist. It doesn't matter who you are. I do it to everybody at work. I do it to everybody at home. If I am focused on this, whether it's magazine article or I'm reading something on my computer or playing a video game or watching TV or thinking, you just aren't there. You you have to like touch me to get me out of that.
0: That's also a little different than, hey, we're in active conflict or, hey, someone's asking something of me and this is my response. This applies to men because when Gottman's doing his research, when he observed couples, What he found is in 85% of couples, it was the male partner doing this.
1: I sympathize because there's many times, and I wouldn't say in my current relationship, but previously, where please tell me what you're thinking. Please tell me how you feel. Are you sure? Yeah. Okay. Here it is. Punished. Or you've at least felt punished. Therefore, you know, don't ask. Or I'm just not going to tell you. It, It isn't worth it. Cause last time, the last, however many times I was punished, therefore going to withhold information.
0: And it makes sense, right? Because if we feel attacked or punished, we don't share as much, but also then there's this lack of emotional connection. And I can't tell you how many times I hear some version of, I can't believe you think that way. It hurts my feelings that you feel that way. So what? We all get to think and feel differently. It's not a personal attack if your spouse has different thoughts or feelings than you. It's a question of how are we going to talk about it and what are we going to do about it?
1: I would have to be very honest and say I'm quite guilty of not flat out saying anything, but giving looks or responses of, I cannot believe you actually think that way. I cannot believe that you believe that's true. Just almost a shocked look, (laughs) disgusted look of you really think that way? Really?
0: And right. With any of these communication things, we all do them. Sometimes the issue isn't, do they exist? Cause they all exist for all of us. Sometimes the question is what is the prevalence with which they are in our relationships? If it's sporadic, it's easy to kind of overlook it, right? If it's all the time or every day or in every conflict, that's a lot bigger problem. And so You know, every therapist in the world has different terminology for this, but Gottman calls it either positive sentiment override or negative sentiment override. And that gets into this question of divorces too, right? Is it, do I generally feel positive about my spouse and my relationship or do I generally feel negative? The point at which you generally feel negative about your partner, you're in a lot of trouble because I don't know how to have a relationship with someone if you fundamentally don't like them or can't appreciate them, or think the vast majority of what they do is stupid or wrong or X, Y, Z, whatever. And I I think this is part of this blindsided thing, too, of you have two different people in a relationship with two different sets of thoughts and feelings and needs, right? It is possible for one person in that relationship to feel good about the relationship and think everything's okay or good enough, and it is possible for the other person to be downright miserable. And that's when we get into this question of attunement. Do you know your spouse? Do you know how they feel about you? Do you know how they feel about the relationship? And do they know if, you think, if, if they think you are resp- responsive to their concerns?
1: Napa Auto Care was top rated in a national survey by consumers of car repair in the chains and independent repair shops category. Ratings were based on courtesy. Timeliness, quality, price of repair, and percent of times the problem was fixed on the first visit. Napa Auto Care is the only banner program to make these ratings. Consumers are familiar with the Napa Auto Care brand, and you can benefit. Napa Auto Care has the largest network of independent professional shops in North America, with over 17,000 locations. Your independent repair facility can join this network and be supported through Napa's national marketing with The already successful know-how for all campaign, which promotes auto care center specific offerings. You get support to promote your local repair facility with targeted media and local markets and improving channels. Utilize a full calendar year of promotions with Napa Auto Care Sales Driver promotions that are 100% fully funded by Napa. This includes free email marketing, digital and print point of sale materials. Connect to their national presence by co-branding your locally known brand with the already nationally recognized Napa brand. Partner with Napa SmartSign to educate customers with engaging videos that tell the why behind a needed repair or service. You can access and edit digital menu boards, template builder tools, social media feeds, and integrations with other auto care program elements. Offer a credit solution to customers with Napa EasyPay Consumer Financing. Stay top of mind with your business's name embossed on the credit card. Have an online presence when consumers search for a local repair facility on Napa Online, which generates millions of views per month at no additional cost. If you are interested in partnering with Napa Auto Care and capitalizing on the Napa Know How for All national marketing campaign, contact your salesperson or servicing Napa Auto Care parts store. At some point, there's only so much you can know, I think. There's only so much you can know, you know, is she's feeling like she's dying in this relationship. That is, she is not no longer herself, whatever she's resenting me and all that. But I have tried being, um, indirect asking and then point blank asking. And I don't know why I would ask. Just, let's just say like, there's a couple things maybe I pick up on. Not thinking she's thinking the end of the relationship, but that she's unhappy or down about something and maybe not even thinking it has a thing to do with me. And if she doesn't say anything, it's hard to feel like you can step back and try to assess your contribution to anything because you may not even know you're involved. Can you give yourself an honest, no BS assessment of what's going on with or without their contribution and determine like, hey, you know what, I am kind of dogging it. In this relationship, like, you know, when I think about these things, especially hopefully after listening to this conversation to be able to go, wow, you know, I got to step it up. But also maybe signs that I need to start looking at myself here or better questions to get them to open up and just, you know, try to head this off before it's too late. Like when they leave, it's not like they've left that day. They've been gone for months or years. So it's not like. You know, there's some feeling of detachment. They, they went through that a long time ago. You just didn't know it.
0: Right. Well, I think it's a really good question because this gets into this idea of relationship skills of, yes, there is a broad conversation couples can have about how are we both feeling in general about this relationship and how are we doing. But then there's also these everyday events and conversations. Okay, we had a fight. Do we go back and talk about it? Do we find a way to resolve it? If there's some sort of perpetual problem, right, some sort of fundamental discrepancy between personality or value or need, do we sit down, do we talk about it, do we come to a place where we're both saying, yes, okay, yes, I'm not getting everything I want, but I'm willing to live with this? Or do we fight about it, scream at each other some, and never talk about it again until the next time we fight about it and scream some more? This is one of the best things about Gottman's research is He kind of discovered even if couples get loud in conflict, that isn't the end of the world. It's how are they managing that, right? Because you can be loud and still be communicating effectively, right? Maybe there's an added question there of do we talk about problems at all? Do we have conflict? Anytime a couple says to me, well, we just don't disagree on anything. I'm like, really? You married yourself?
1: Yeah, what fun would that be?
0: what fun would that be? And I doubt it. There's that sort of relationship skills. There's also this idea of how do we start conversations with one another? Are we able to sit down and say, hey, this thing is bothering me. Can we talk about it? Or is somebody kind of flying off the handle? Or this is the fifth time this week you didn't take out the trash and now I'm losing my mind. Well, it's better to address it earlier. Like, hey, can you do this, please? (laughs) Versus waiting until there's a ton of resentment and anger. And now we're not communicating about it effectively.
1: Not only for the one that's, uh, we'll just say upset uh, about, we'll just say the trash. And it doesn't even matter which one. I don't, I don't care what roles are you know, people are playing in the relationship. You know, I'm sure they've asked nicely. They've probably asked nicely a couple of times. And now it's kind of like, all right, I've asked you a couple of times. I'm going to flat out tell you to please take out the trash. And they still don't. Now the other person, when that other, the upset one is now confronting you like, why? Why is it such a big deal? Why can't you? Why haven't you been blah, blah, blah? That you have to be able to accept it too. Can't go on the defensive. You can't, well, you're, you know, let's get this over to here where I know you're wrong and I can justify all this. Like, let's steer this you know, argument to where I have the advantage, you got to be able to take it too. You got to be able to step back and go like, Hey, you're right. I hate taking out the trash, you know, come to a solution like, well, okay, you're an adult, take out the trash, (laughs) You know, whatever it is, or you switch roles or switch jobs, whatever. But it just seems a lot of times we put each other in these no win situations that really you can't win like I'm trying to do the right thing. I'm trying to use my, I feel statements. I'm trying to be nice. I've worked up to the point of where now I'm a little ticked off that I have to do this. And now I feel like I've been put in this position and now, now it's turning into this big to do and I can't win. Both probably feel like I can't win.
0: (laughs) Well, right. Yes. And right. This idea of being able to give an honest assessment of sort of your role in the relationship. It's the difference between saying, well, I've been really busy and here's a million reasons why I haven't done this, which can be true, but may not be inherently useful in the moment versus that, you know what? You're right. You've asked me three times. I haven't done it. I'm sorry. Let me go do it right now. That doesn't mean you can't go back and have the conversation later about, hey, you know what, this really didn't work for me, or on these weeks when XYZ is going on, I can't do this, because you totally can. But it's in the moment when someone's bringing you a complaint, how are you responding in that moment? Do they know you're taking them seriously? Are you being responsive? Are you tuning in? It's it's this idea of when you're upset, I drop everything and pay attention.
1: I do all that. I just lead into it with eye rolling first.
0: With a lot of contempt first. Yeah. Yes. I roll
1: my (laughs) eyes then very focused on what you're saying.
0: There's a lot of kind of soft relationship skills that play into this idea of emotional needs. And do I feel connected to a partner? And I think this is kind of the other half of where couples get into trouble sometimes is we're all imperfect, When one of us makes a mistake or we're frustrated and now we have to make a repair, culturally, we are terrible at figuring out how to make a repair to someone who is either upset with us or has been hurt by us or has some type of negative, difficult, big emotion towards us, right? And on the flip, we're not necessarily the best about accepting those repair attempts either, if your spouse says, you know, I'm really sorry, and then you keep going and berating them about how you can't believe how dumb they are, not super helpful. And why would anyone apologize to you then if that's the response they
1: get? Or earnest, heartfelt apology is not good enough. Now, what else is there? Like, you would have to accept the apology and then wait for the action, the follow-up action down the road. But no, no sorry is not good enough. You. <laughs> We're horrible, horrible about that. I think the media, like our entertainment media, there is not a ton of very good examples set anymore. It's Everything's got to be so dramatic. It just seems like, you know, it used to be the saying was uh, art imitated life. But I think because our art, mainly uh, entertainment, TV, movies, stuff like that, may, maybe to a degree music, but really uh, movies and television... Life is starting to imitate art in the households. Yeah, I don't know. A, a show that showed people working through some problems in a healthy fashion probably wouldn't wouldn't last a season. But the examples of people working stuff out, even if it's a little messy working it out, like not some perfect, you know, we had an argument and then 15 minutes later we sat down and held hands and discussed it and it was so much better afterwards. Even if it wasn't really that, it was the course of a few days or a week, but ultimately you got to where you needed to go. We don't see examples of that.
0: Right. Very much so. And one of the absolute worst things we can do for anybody we're in a relationship with is evoke a sense of hopelessness in them. I can't make it better. I can't help you. I can't live down this mistake. I can't fix it. That is a terrible place to sit in. And so this is, I think where we get into this idea of personal accountability and responsibility of, do you know your own needs? Can you tell your spouse what those are? And if you're upset with your spouse, can you tell them, Hey, here's why I'm upset. And this is what I want now in order to feel better. I want to know that you're going to go think about it and come back to me with an idea for how we're going to prevent this from happening again. Or I want to know that you understand how upset I am. Like you have to give your spouse something, but that requires you to own what you want and not expect them to mind read and just know how to make you feel better.
1: Yeah, it's not so much comical, but there's a lot of stuff we're talking about here that mimic running a shop like as a as an owner or a a manager. If you can't give your employees a long-term plan where they're feeling hopeless, like this job is going nowhere, they're out. It's kind of the same thing in the relationship where if it's, I feel like this relationship's going nowhere, that sense of hopelessness, like I'm going to be stuck feeling this way or worse for the rest of my life, that's, (laughs) that's no bueno.
0: Right, and so when we look at predictors of divorce from a research standpoint, there's four big ones, right? The problems are viewed as severe, The couple is leading parallel lives and there's not a ton of connection anymore. You aren't doing things together. One or both people feel lonely and talking seems useless and or you try to solve problems by yourself. I don't think it matters whether that's a friendship or an employer or a relationship or anywhere else. If that's what the theme is in that scenario, nobody's interested in staying there. And yes, good relationship and communication skills. It doesn't matter if it's your marriage or at work or with coworkers or with, you know, the jerk at Aldi. It's going to get you farther than not having them. So the other big relationship skill we talk about when we're looking at how do we prevent a relationship from getting to the point where a divorce is feeling like it's the only option for someone is this idea of accepting influence. So not being so stuck. And how you think it should be that you're completely immovable.
1: When I think about that, the expectation stuff, it makes me think of like the um, National Lampoon vacation films. It's namely like the first three, right? The vacation, European vacation, and then Christmas vacation that Clark consistently sets himself up for huge letdowns because ex- expectations are of himself and everybody else are so high. And it has to play out this certain way or it's an epic fail. I don't know if people are watching these movies kind of paying attention to that. You know, Of course, you're laughing, but sometimes there's some really good themes going on you got to pay attention to and definitely see how when you have certain expectations of how something is going to play out from as little as a daily activity with your significant other to a date, you could be really setting yourself up for some major letdown. And then like it's for whatever reason it just starts building that resentment. Like it sticks in the back of your head. You're not consciously thinking of it, but it pops in from time to time. Like, oh, I remember that one time we went on a date and he didn't even hold the door open for me or, you know, he sat down first, something like that.
0: Resentment's a relationship killer. So being able to know what you want from a scenario and tell the other person what you want so they have a chance of actually providing that. Is hugely important.
1: Pause for a sec. I got a dog out in the street. Oh, good luck. Luckily, they listen better than my wife. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Mine
1: don't. Tracy's gonna make sure that stays in there. Anyways, I think expectations is kind of where we're leaving off, or I left off.
0: Knowing what you want from a scenario and then being able to communicate that to a spouse in a useful way. Also, being able to accept if your spouse either can't or isn't willing to provide everything you want. Right? So that's the other big thing that we see a lot of in long-term relationships is this question of any long-term relationship we're in is going to meet certain needs and not meet others. And so sometimes where resentment happens is instead of sort of coming to terms with the fact that this relationship isn't going to meet, you know, X need over here, We just resent, 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 fight, fight, fight about it. And it just turns into this giant thing versus how do we sort of grieve the loss of not having that need met, so to speak, accept it and move on.
1: How much of that do you think springs from uh, a feeling of maybe false pretenses given? Meaning we kind of talked about the first two years, kind of a quote unquote honeymoon period where things are easy. And you do kind of do whatever. And you've had the dating phase. Maybe, you know, maybe you've lived together, maybe not, whatever. It's not really that important. But all these important needs that maybe you don't even think about as being needs are being met. Whatever those are. You know, conscientiousness. I don't mean mystery so much like um, spontaneity. Random gifts, random acts of kindness even. And then after three years together, five years together. Those wane. And they probably would naturally. But then you have those conversations where it's like, hey, you know, I'm not saying you have to do that so often, but I do kind of miss some of the spontaneity, like just a random something. And maybe the first time, it's like the next day they do something nice. (laughs) Like the very next day. And it lasts for a little bit and then trails off. And then essentially it's like, yeah, you know what? I just don't want to anymore. That seems like that could breed a terrific amount of resentment because I felt like I was misled. And that me specifically, them, what, whatever. I could see how that could really be a big issue. It's like, this is something you did freely before, and I kind of assumed it would be, you know, maybe not at the same frequency, but still kind of there throughout our relationship and that was important to me and because it was being met I didn't bring it up in like our little meeting before we got married of like well these were my expectations and see if they correlate um, it was just kind of assumed I could see how that would breed a terrific amount of resentment no it just amplifies everything everything else wrong just
0: yes early on in relationships we do tend to be more attentive to our spouses and This is where these good communication skills come in, right? And that personal ownership stuff of, are you recognizing your own needs? Are you recognizing what needs aren't being met? And are you able to say to a spouse, hey, I want X. What can you provide, right? And can your spouse be flexible enough to say, you know what? Yes, I can do X, Y, Z. Here's the thing I can't do. Can you live with that? A lot of times we don't have those conversations where there's a lot of honesty about, Yes, I'm willing to do X, Y, Z, and here's the things I'm not willing to do. You get to now make whatever choice you need to make based on that information, right? Because I hear couples all the time, they'll make promises where they kind of in the moment know they're not going to do it, but they promise it anyways. And now not only have you promised me something that you're not going to do, so I'm going to be disappointed, but then if it ever comes out that you knew you couldn't do it in the first place, now you've also lied to me. And I think there are these assumptions that happen around sort of the cultural story we tell ourselves about, well, when I find a good match, they're just going to meet my needs. They're just going to know. And that isn't accurate. That isn't true. Even in the happiest couples that have really good relationship skills, there is no mind reading. You have to be able to communicate and negotiate those things together.
1: I guess we can all figure out pretty quick which needs shouldn't be met probably outside of a relationship. But there are a great many of them that, if they're not met within the relationship, are easily met outside of it through friendships and uh, whatnot. It's odd sometimes that how, how much importance it is that this need be met in this relationship. There's things we can talk to our wives about. There's stuff we do not talk to our friends or coworkers about.
0: Right. That conversation gets into this idea of what is reasonable to ask from a spouse. And does your spouse have the skills to say, nope, here are the things I can't do for you. And then what does that mean for the relationship?
1: It's rare it's going to be just one person ever. Right. Can we go somewhere and acquire some of these tools, acquire some of these skills? probably romanticize the past, right? You know, back, when, back in the day when marriages meant something and they lasted, people had these skills that I don't know that they ever really did. I think social pressures were different. And so a lot of people stayed in some very, very toxic relationships that now would never, nor should they be put up with. But we also have more tools available to us than ever before to go learn sources. The social pressure is not there not to seek out the help to get these toolkits to help in these relationships, to get a skill, learn a new skill. You know, and a lot of us techs, we think nothing of going to learn a new skill to fix a car. Like, Oh, circuit board level repairs. Count me in $300 for this class. Yeah. i probably have to take it a couple of times. Will they go to a therapist with their spouse to learn a skill set on communication and listening, you know, it's it's great. You're a fir- fixer personality. Hooray for you. That's not what's going to help here. Let's work on this. And I don't know, drag your feet going. I don't know. <laughs> it's, it's odd to me how that stuff changes.
0: There's so many options now. So couples therapy or individual therapy are certainly some of those options. And I think sometimes those, they're certainly underutilized, particularly by men. Sometimes there's this thought of, well, if we don't go to couples therapy, there's no sense in me going to individual therapy because nothing's going to happen. Well, except if you go to individual and say, hey, I want to improve how I do in this relationship, you can work on that by yourself. But you have to stop. You have to get out of the here's everything they do wrong and everything I do right. Right. Cause these are these are skills just like anything else. They're they're totally things you can learn. But we have so many options now. So it's not just therapy. You can find stuff on this on YouTube. There's hours and hours and hours on YouTube. There's books, there's seminars, there's weekend getaways. I mean, there's a million ways to find this information. And then you have to write, do this self-evaluation point of, okay, so when we talk about, say, contempt versus appreciation, yeah, I know I do that. And I know I'm not doing this. So then how am I going to change that behavior in myself?
1: The frequency of positive things they were doing, not that they're doing so many negative things, it's more like zero, one, two, almost, or negative one, zero, one, where there's the stuff that I used to do that was very positive, one, and maybe a few negatives. But the frequency of things I do now, having been in this relationship for years, that's zero. Not doing anything really good, not doing anything really bad, but it's zero. Over time, I just wonder if the frequency of that goes up because both are coming off the honeymoon period high and just not feeling as, I don't know if fulfilled is quite the right word, but just happy, charged. It's it's now sometimes it seems like it's a job. Now the work comes in. It should be kind of a labor of love. Not I don't even mean like figuratively, like it really should be at some point. They find when they do work together on these whether it's individually or together together via videos or going to see a therapist, that now because of your overall happiness in the relationship, if only if only the optimism given by you're both working on it together allows the positive one frequency to increase because it's easier to do.
0: Hope will keep people in a relationship. Hope says, okay, it's not great now, but it could be better tomorrow, and I'm willing to wait for that. And sometimes what happens is, right, part of the honeymoon effect is this idea of novelty. It's new, it's exciting, we get all sorts of oxytocin and happy chemicals, and that's great. Sometimes what I see from couples is, it's not only that the honeymoon effect wears off, it's that then we get complacent and we stop thinking about the relationship. Long-term satisfying relationships Don't just happen. You have to put a lot of work into them. It takes work. It takes intentional thought and effort. They don't just magically appear.
1: But that's not what it was like in that movie.
0: Yeah, that's rough. Jeez. Right? We're not taught those skills. And most of us underestimate how much work it takes to be in a a relationship.
1: Yeah, that's where my parents shafted me. They made it look easy. I think it's their fault.
0: (laughs) Just blame them. (laughs) You know, this is kind of a fun one. I really like this one. It's this idea of bids of connection or bids for connection. This is a super little everyday thing couples can do. It's if your spouse tries to get your intention, your attention, right? Hey, look at that bird out the window. Do you blank them out and don't respond at all? Or do you get up and go look?
1: I would ask for details first. No, I'm just kidding. I would but say I get up engagement. and look. that's still
0: engagement. That still counts. Yeah,
1: I get up and look. I mean, I want to see what's, what's so amazing so that I can look out the window, look at her, roll my eyes, and then go sit down. Good. <laughs> Good. That's, that's the play here.
0: Yeah. I don't know about that. But these bids for connection, when we look at long-term marriages where there's a lot of kind of marital satisfaction... It's not that couples have to be perfect at it. They're not. The research indicates really what they're doing is they're responding to it about 80% of the time. You don't even have to get an A. That
1: should be easy then.
0: It should be. But we, right, we get wrapped up in our phone. And how many times does your, does your spouse say, hey, 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 before they give up? And then that's the hopelessness moment. Well, now I'm not trying to connect with you anymore because you're not even looking at me. I said your name four times.
1: Okay, I'm out. If it's possible, is there something that something reasonable that you could think of that all of us could just either do or think, you know, after after this episode ends, like with our relationships with our significant others? Is there is there a an idea or an act or a something to think about, to to try to do that? Because I think it does come down to that kind of that honest no BS assessment of what's going on. Not that everyone's relationships on the rocks, but I think there's a lot of us thinking I'm not that guy. I'm not that person. My relationship is so much better than theirs. And you don't know. On the flip side, I'm going through hell right now. Uh, You know, split up is eminent and it may not be and it may not have to be. Is there something to do, something to think about to be able to step back and look and give yourself a chance to either prevent a split up or just immediately improve the relationship?
0: There's two things I think about when I'm thinking about how do we do honest assessments of ourselves in a relationship? One is we have to pull ourselves out of the relationship kind of metaphorically, divorce ourselves from it a little bit. And so sometimes what I tell folks is, so imagine the most recent fight you had with your spouse or negative interaction, whatever it is. If you kind of remove yourself from that scenario and were to put someone else in your place and it was like you were watching a movie where you didn't know that person's intentions, how would you feel towards that person who's playing you? Would you like what you're seeing? Could you stand by those actions or are there some edits that need to happen there?
1: (laughs) That's really good advice.
0: That one's really good. That gets people. So do that because that's a good honest evaluation. It pulls you out of it where you don't know your intent or your feelings, right? The other one is... As ridiculous as you might think your spouse is when they are at their worst and they are just throwing everything they can at you and you think everything they're saying is nonsense, what are the parts of what they're saying that are true? Because almost always there are some kernels in there that are good feedback. There might be a lot of crappy feedback, but there are some kernels of truth in there that if you look at those, It's going to give you a lot of information about how you're presenting in this relationship and what edits could you make.
1: Yeah. If anything, to give them credit for the feelings, if what we're saying, like at their worst and it's anything and everything they can throw, if anything, to evoke a reaction out of you, you know, to try to get a response, to get you upset too, to try to not saying it's a strategy of theirs to make you feel as bad as they feel, but to at least, try to step back in that situation and go like, okay, they're legitimately upset and I have to ignore some of the stuff they're throwing at me because I don't think they actually believe it's true. They just need, they need to, they're trying to communicate something to me and, you know, it might be condescending, but they're not doing a good job of it. I probably not given them the alternative either, or I cut that alternative off. So yeah, like you're saying to at least appreciate where they're coming from, from that, frustration or pain or whatever to kind of sift through the actual items being thrown at you to get to the root cause, or at least try to deescalate it enough. You know, later on you can have a real discussion about it and get to the source or at least work your way towards the source.
0: Right. It's the difference between putting up a wall versus like mosquito netting, right? A wall lets nothing, nothing in mosquito netting. We still get some stuff. So play it like a movie And pay attention to your kind of your boundaries and your walls.
1: Again, not to always just reference it back to the shop stuff, but really if the customer is standing in front of you, screaming at you, part of them screaming at you is they are giving you the opportunity to make it right. If they didn't want anything to do with you, they wouldn't be back. So they're screaming at you to make it right. And even if you know what you did wasn't quote unquote wrong, You have to appreciate their frustration and fear that they just got taken. And the same applies to that relationship to your significant other or spouse. They're screaming at you. If they were done, they wouldn't be screaming at you. They just wouldn't be there. They'd be packing their bags or the next day when you come home from work, they're just not there. (laughs) Right? They're screaming at you. You have an opportunity to make things right or... You know, again, not that it's always got to be somebody's fault uh, to get later on, de-escalate and and try to find the root cause. This has been enlightening. I really keep going here. You can point out everything I'm doing wrong, which just in this hour sounds like a lot. (laughs) So I'm not going to let my wife listen to this one. I don't think. Oh, that's reassuring. She'll use it against me. Are you kidding me? I can't arm her with that kind of knowledge. No way.
0: So we will not be doing any honest appraisals here. We will just be tucking this away and pretending like it didn't happen.
1: My 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 appraisals will be sarcastically accurate. They're gonna be riddled with sarcasm, so it seems like I'm not serious when the underlying meaning is extremely serious. I'm just trying to soften the blows. It's a defense mechanism, I think. Which will be this <laughs> that'll be the topic of our next one. <laughs> <laughs> I so appreciate you coming on and talking about this. I think it does. It's really important to get stuff like this out there because it does correlate with those previous episodes and the stories we've heard that, um, this stuff affects us, uh, deeply. And this is one facet of it. And it's, I'm just so happy to have you as a, a, not only a, like a resource, but as a friend, thank you for coming on and sharing your knowledge with us. I'm, I just, I really can't thank you enough.
0: Yeah, thanks for having me.
1: All right. Thank you, everyone, for listening. If you have uh, any ideas for future episodes or you want to reach out to me, I'm very easy to get a hold of. You can find me on social media. You can also email me at podcast at gmail.com. And uh, I would also just like to thank Uh, Margaret, again, thank you, NAP Auto Care, for sponsoring. Thank you, the Aftermarket Radio Network, for really making this all possible. And until next time, take care. You've been listening to Matt Fonslow, diagnosing the aftermarket A to Z on the Aftermarket Radio Network. Follow Matt on your favorite listening app.
0: He's very interested in what you have to say. Let him know what you'd like him to cover and come on the show. Matt is all for advancing the aftermarket. Find Matt Fonslow on social media and connect or on aftermarketradionetwork.com.